Thanks, Drew. If you have a Bible, you can be making your way to the New Testament book of James. We are in <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 this morning. If you um, don't have a Bible, the text is printed there for you in the worship guide. You can take a look at that. <clears throat> uh, this is our, if you're new here, this is our sermon series, working through this letter, which is written by James to the churches that are kind of scattered outside of Jerusalem. And um, if you've been here, or even if you haven't and you just know something about James, you may know the passage in chapter 1 where God told people, if, if you lack wisdom, you should ask for it, and, and that God gives it to us freely and without reproach. Um, he would like to talk to us more, more about that and really to start to answer the question. So let's say you did. Let's say you asked for wisdom. What might it look like and what might it not look like? Uh, so let's read and remember this is God's word. And as always, it's for us. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? As we come now to your word, Lord, we, we ask that um, the, the eyes of our, of our hearts would be opened, that um, our ears would be unstopped, and um, that we would be inclined to what you have to say to us, and that and that we would hear clearly, and that by the help of your Spirit, we would be able to apply what we hear. So we pray that even in this passage, talking about wisdom, that we would see Christ, and that seeing him, we would become like him. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, <clears throat> in my youth, I, I did a little grass cutting for some side money, as many of you probably did at some point, and so sometimes when I was cutting grass, I would run across an ant bed, fire ants, and <clears throat> I'm not a pest control expert, which may be surprising, but uh, the best treatment that I could come up was the following. Find the ant bed, pour gasoline on top of it, step back, light it, and watch what happens. And if you've ever done that, it is profoundly entertaining. But when you come back the next week to cut the grass, the mound has just moved, right? The ants didn't die. Maybe you got like five of them, but it just moved over because they're not worried about your gasoline and your, um, and your fire. Actually, it's very dangerous to do that. There was an entomologist from the Texas uh, Agricultural Extension Service that <laughs> he said this. In, in 1995, a Cook County man was pouring gasoline on fire ant mounds in his yard, setting them on fire. What you don't know about fire ants is that the, the tunnels are everywhere. I mean, if they're 
that's how they move. They just kind of move from place to place. He says, he thought all his fires were out, but a few minutes later was horrified to see his house burned to the ground. I assume the ants survived, right? Um, felt like a good idea, right? Seems logical. Fire and powerful chemicals should kill fire ants, but, but no, and you'll have to talk to one of our elders, Philip Smith, who's the pest control expert around here, but um, that's, a, that's just a picture of something that you and I face every day, that um, there's a way that seems good for us to live. There are ways that we try to deal with our problems and our circumstances and our troubles and ourselves and other people, and, um, and it seems good. And we accidentally lit the whole house on fire, and we didn't fix the problem, right? Uh, to put it this way, uh, sometimes we handle things according to our own wisdom, and we end up doing bad for us, bad for other people. And uh, we have a better option. That's what James wants to talk to us about. His, very simply put, he, he tells us, seek the wisdom that's from above, because that's what's good for you, and it's what's good for the world around you. So that's what we're talking about today. So let's, if you like outlines, here it is. We're going to talk about our quest for wisdom, what is earthly wisdom, and what is the wisdom from above. Uh, so first, uh, our quest for wisdom. I, I would have loved to have seen a shown of hands when James asked his question in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Right? So how many of them would have said, well, not me. I mean, I know myself. I'm just, I'm not wise. I need help. How many of them would have said, um, no, I'm not wise, but they really thought they were, right? And how many of them would have raised their hand and said, yeah, I think I'm doing pretty good in this respect, especially based on what he just told them. This is right after the passage where he talks about setting the world on fire with your words and how hard it is to tame the tongue. The assumption of the rest of Scripture is that uh, one way that wisdom is displayed is knowing when to say a word in season, to, to say the right thing at the right time that's helpful, and when to not say anything because that's what's most helpful. It's hard to tame the tongue. So would they consider themselves wise and understanding? And we need to understand, too, it was to be desired. So the, these are largely Old Testament familiar people, right? And they would have known this passage from the Proverbs. Let's listen to what the passage in Proverbs would say about wisdom. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Same language from this passage. The gain from her is better than the gain from silver. Her profit, better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Wisdom. They, they had a high premium for wisdom. This is the most precious thing that you can get. And remember when we say wisdom, what we're talking about. Because verse 13 makes the tie that it has something to do with our conduct. Right? Not just our knowledge. And... Um, we're tempted to think that wisdom is all about knowledge and gathering information, but wisdom is about knowing and then doing something that is best, skilled, good for the world, good for us, honoring to God, all of those things. And conduct and your works are the place where your wisdom is seen or not seen. Uh, we also need to understand that wisdom is not about following a recipe book or a formula, right? That if you do X and then add Y to it, then it will always produce uh, Z, outside of science and math, th there isn't much in your life or my life that works that way. Hardly anything is formulaic. Um, consider parenting. 
there are thousands of books that will offer you a method on, on any number of things, a method of discipline. If you do this, it will do this for your children and it will produce good kids. If you want to get your baby to sleep, do this, it will produce this, your baby will sleep. Tons of how-tos of every stripe, follow our formula, get good kids, and you older parents just laugh and laugh and laugh because you know better, right? You know that every kid is different, every parent is different, every set of household circumstances are different, every family of origin is different, and what you need is not a formula because it may or may not work. You have no idea. What you need is to learn to be a wise parent, which is a billion times harder than following a formula. If only there were a formula, great, then we could all do it. But there's not one. So you have to be wise. You could say this about everything. It's true for singleness and dating. When to date this person, when not to. How to handle singleness. How to handle your marriage. How to, how to enter into retirement w- without blowing up. How to enter into old age without becoming a train wreck. How to handle your friendships and your work and your hobbies. All those things. They require wisdom. There's hardly any formulas for any of it. Who is wise and understanding among us? This was not just a quest for the ancient world. It's our quest in our world. And if you don't believe it, ask yourself this question. Why do we have so many articles, books, podcasts, YouTube videos that want to tell us how to do everything and to get ahead and to do it in the best way and to win and to maximize yourself and to be most efficient? We're all after wisdom. Now, Universal human pursuit. But we do need to ask this question. Have have we, what do you think that wisdom is? Is it possible that we have bought into the assumption of the culture in which we live? Because if we would evaluate our world and just how most people function today, we really do assume that what we need most is information. What we need most is knowledge and, and content. We live in a world that's incredibly content-driven. We go to school for a long time, right? And, and again, that's, those are all good things, but you can, after school, you can take online courses, listen to online lectures, get information, and it will all promise you a good life of some sort. The assumption of our world is this. You are a brain on a stick, and if you can get the right information, then you can maximize your life and, and be the full human that you're supposed to be. Information is good. Don't hear me blasting it, right? We need good information. It's true. I'm not telling you to check out of school and to, you know, go build a cabin in the woods. Um, but if you talk to any education specialist, they'll, they'll be quick to tell you that what you need is not just good information. You need integration. You need that information that actually comes into play in your life so that you become a different person, right? That, that's how humans operate. But again, what, what do you think you need in that part of your life that is most frustrating to you right now? What are you tempted to think that, that would help you? It, do you tend to think, I just, need, I just need better information? I just need one more book on that. I, I need a little bit, I need one more formula, because if I can just master that formula, then I probably can fix this area of, of my life. Those things can be good, but they're incomplete. Um, we need something deeper than knowledge. Have you ever thought about this? Even when someone's doing something foolish and sinful and evil, what is it that they're after? 
Even when we do those kinds of things, we are still pursuing something that we think is going to make our life better. Have you ever met someone that they're, they're throwing their lives away completely, and they say, yeah, I, I know exactly what I'm doing, and yeah, that's my goal. No, they think that somehow even pursuing these destructive things, they're going to make their life better. That is to say, whether you're the PhD pursuing moral person or the morally degraded person who is just making havoc in his or her life, we're all pursuing the same thing. We're all trying to have what the, what the Bible would call wisdom, the ability to know and do what we think is going to produce the good life for us. But it begs the question, are we pursuing good wisdom or bad? Wisdom from above or below? Wisdom that is heavenly or earthly? Let's talk about earthly, because James does. Second point, look at verse 14. He says it's possible someone would say, I have wisdom and understanding. But the thing that drives them at their core is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And James is saying, if that's the case, then they are boasting about having what they actually don't have. And they're being false to the truth. In our quest for wisdom, if you have yourself at the center of that quest, um, then then things are going to go wrong for you. If you're pursuing bad wisdom, here's your goal. Make myself great, right? That's what drives bitter jealousy. Um, every comparison is made with myself as the standard. And so when I see someone who, who is doing better than me, who's more successful, who's making more money, who has their life more together than my life seems together, I become bitterly jealous. I become envious. Um, why? Because the world revolves around me maximizing myself. The standard for all evaluation is how, how am I doing and am I winning? Similar for selfish ambition. Ambition isn't bad. There's a place for that, scripturally speaking. Selfish ambition is that internal drive that puts yourself in the middle and says, I I will give all of my effort, all of my striving, all of my work and creativity and knowledge and know-how to make a better existence for myself, to create a great name for me, to get glory for my name. And James wants us to understand plenty of people in our world are pursuing wisdom toward that end, with the self at the center and, and, and that comes from somewhere. And he tells us where in verse 15, that this isn't the wisdom that comes from above. Here, here's its roots. Here's, here's the soil from which it grows. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Earthly in the bad sense of the word. Or earthly in the sense of um, it's empowered by the ethos of our age, by the values of the culture around us. It, it is driven by the... The, what's in the air supply of you do you to thine own self be true. You make sure you get yours. That's what earthly wisdom is driven by. And if that weren't enough, it's also unspiritual, which in the original language conveys the idea of it's of the flesh, which gets into it's of human nature in the worst sense of the, of the word. Meaning that we, pursuing selfish wisdom will play on your worst instincts. As a person who's born with a sinful nature, which we, we believe that we all are, we're born all twisted up and tangled, and so we want to get what will make us most comfortable, most in control, uh, most competent, what will give us the most pleasure, and so we chase things that are empowered by the aims of our flesh. 
Even as a Christian, you're given a new nature in Christ, but you have this old part of your nature, the remnants of it left over, which we're supposed to fight. But we could still completely give life to those things. And if those two things weren't enough, uh, he, brings up, he brings up the demonic. And again, in our 21st century world, I don't know that many people are thinking about the demonic But the Bible, this is a helpful place to remember, the Bible assumes a personal evil power called the devil, Satan, that has minions that hate God and hate his people and want you to hate God too and will try to move things and shift things and whisper things in such a way that that you do exactly what they want. And so you better believe it that the The devil would love for us to get lots of degrees and skills and abilities and invent technologies and do all sorts of good things completely motivated by self-interest, self-glory, selfish ambition, and the desire to one-up everybody around us. He would love that. That would be a win. Those three have been called the unholy trinity, world, flesh, and devil. And all three are at work in our self-centered, jealous form of wisdom. So, there's no good news yet. We also need to talk about what will it produce? Because it's not just that this exists and that it's rooted in something. It also produces something. And this might be the easiest thing to see. Look at verse uh, 16. Where selfish ambition and jealousy exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Right, that, that the very order that we're trying to create by coming up with our systems and, and inventing things and doing certain, it, it will spin into disorder and chaos, and we end up in a worse state than we began. Or that the very good thing that we're trying to accomplish will spin off a hundred vile practices that undermine even good intentions. Earthly wisdom might be captured in the story of the, uh, the sorcerer's apprentice, which is actually a really old poem. But many of you, like me, were tricked by your elementary school teachers. Hey, we're going to watch a movie today. It's a cartoon. It's going to be a lot of fun. And it was Fantasia. Anybody seen that? Which is essentially a symphony that is set to some cartoons. It it was a cruel trick that they played on us to show us Fantasia. As as an adult, I appreciate it. As a seven-year-old, that was a ploy. Anyway, it, it, it has Mickey Mouse. And he, he is the Sorcerer's Apprentice. And you might know the story. He steals the sorcerer's hat, puts it on, has no idea what he's doing. All he knows is that I want to stop carrying these, these uh, buckets of water and, and sweeping with this broom. So he puts a spell on the bucket and the broom so that they go get their own water and they do their own cleaning up. But he doesn't know how to control it. And he, it, it gets too much water and the place starts to flood. And so he takes, he tries to cut the broom and the bucket into two, and they just spawn into more and more, and it ends up with a giant flood. Of course, the sorcerer has to come and fix it. He destroys the place by his wisdom. Why? Because he wanted to make his life more comfortable for himself without regard for the powers with which he was toying and the sorcerer, and he used his creativity and his ability toward his own ends to create order, and disorder followed. How many? This was a rare week in my sermon prep where there were more examples and illustrations than than I could put in a sermon. That never happens to me. But I mean, think of the myriad examples of this. Go technology alone, right? 
Let's invent computers and smartphones that will be tools that benefit the world. Also, let's give one to every single human being, even children. What could possibly go wrong, right? That's, that's what we do. We're inventing this great magical technology that actually ends up destroying people. And so the internet will connect people, says one person. 20 years later, that same person who invented it will not even talk to his family members because a conflict was mediated online that will never be resolved because it's not embodied. We did that to ourselves. That is the epitome of earthly wisdom. Unintended consequences that accompany wisdom from below. Magic that brings with it the free gift of dehumanizing us. Things that we invent that might bring us untold riches, but are not good for the world. And in fact, we don't even stop to ask the question, is this going to be good? Is this going to help more than it hurts? And in fact, um, in the old days, we called that exploitation. That we come up with something that's good for me, but it runs over the back of other people. Um, the best that earthly wisdom can do. Radically self-centered. And the problem is that we're good at justifying it. We're good at baptizing it and saying that this is a tool that will help millions. It will also make me millions, right? And we can't see past that aspect. Uh, we use phrases like, well, the ends will justify the means. Or there will be some collateral damage, but the overall net effect will be good. And, and let me just say this. That this is the most normal thing in the world. This, this is the air that we breathe. Uh, In our broken and sinful world, earthly wisdom has the ring of truth. It sounds right. It it feels right. It pays off sometimes, at least a little. We do a little good. We get a little kickback. It promotes our name. We don't worry about who gets hurt in the process. And 20 years later, we're evaluating it and seeing that, oh, we actually did more harm than good. The author of Proverbs, this is not a new problem. The author of Proverbs sums it up this way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death, always. So where might you be pursuing the wisdom that is from below, that's got you at the center, worldly in the bad sense, playing on your worst instincts and base desires, possibly co-opted by the evil one himself? And this is, this is the case even if you're here and you belong to, to Jesus, if you're a Christian, We're susceptible. Here's a way to ask it. Have you ever questioned your own motives? Moreover, have you ever asked someone who loves you to question your motives for you? You know the problem with not being able to see. You can't see, right? So you can't see what you actually cannot see. Sometimes another person has to see it for you. Have you ever questioned your own own motives in, in taking a job, in your use of technology, in your purchasing, in your parenting, if you should or shouldn't go on a date with this person, if you make this big life decision, you ever question your own motives? If, if bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are the air that we breathe, even if we belong to Christ, we should assume there's more of that in us than we think, right? A healthy distrust of self. Now, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian or you're not sure, welcome. Glad that you're here. I hope you'll keep coming and doing what we're all trying to do, which is sit under God's word and try to see what he has to say to us. But um, have you ever questioned your motives? And maybe you're sitting there thinking, what's wrong with trying to do good for myself? Right? Seems like a valid question. My question in response would be, okay, so is it possible to live a full, meaningful life if you're only concerned with yourself? 
um, that's worth a coffee conversation, which I would love to have with you. Um, what's better wisdom for us to seek? Is there anything other than earthly wisdom from below? That last point, there is wisdom from above. Let's talk about it. Instead of being self-promoting, it's self-forgetting. Look at verse 13. It will show itself in works, uh, its works in the meekness of wisdom. That word meek translates to self-forgetfulness. And the truly wise will do things that they never even stop to think, so what's in this for me? They just, they won't, it won't register, or they'll chase that thought away. It's, this is the essence of humility. One pastor put it this way, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Uh, true wisdom always has its aim at the, the good of others, the glory of God, and less about how to maximize my life, promote my brand, get my cut. Uh, the aim of my works is the good of other people. Um, and it has different roots. It's rooted in truth rather than falsehood. It's, it's from above rather than below. Spiritual in nature, not just the flesh. It's given by God himself. And look at what it produces in verse 17. This wisdom produces purity, clean living before God, wholeness, even holiness. Um, because there's no reason to live in ways that drift toward the unclean or impure or unholy. Because hedonism is no longer our goal. We have something better than just raw pleasure. Um, it, it produces peaceableness. We're not prone to strife for discord or disorder because we no longer have to defend ourselves uh, or make sure that we get our thing or promote our cause. We don't have to do that anymore. It produces gentleness because we no longer have to rely on harshness or cruelty or impatience to get what we want. It's open to reason rather than just being closed off and unwilling to listen. It's, it's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial. It's sincere. Why? Because it's not focused on promoting myself. It's focused on the glory of God and the good of the people around us. There's no reputation to defend, no interest to protect, no posturing. And it has a long-term effect, which you can see in verse 18. That, that those who are wise according to God's wisdom will be people who make peace. You know, you know what's involved in that. That means that instead of holding a grudge, we seek reconciliation. That instead of choosing to wall myself off, I will seek forgiveness. I will try, as the scriptures say, as far as it depends on me, I will strive to be at peace with everyone. And for those who exercise that, James says, there is this harvest of righteousness that is sown that will bear fruit in your life and the people around you and for years to come. It has a visual, long-term effect. When you become a peaceful, peaceable person because of the gospel, it will produce peace around you and make its way out into the world. That is what the wisdom from above does. It is good for us, but it's not focused on us. It is good for others, but again, it's the result of good fruit that grows. But, but how do you get it, right? How do you even begin to seek it? It's not earthly. It's not normal. It's not what you're going to find if you're left to yourself. God has to give it. It's ours for the asking, we've been told already. But, but we need to understand that wisdom is not a commodity, right? And, and it's, not, it's not even a spiritual gift, it's not, it doesn't make the spiritual gift lists. Wisdom is not a value, per se. It's not a, an aura. It's not a substance. If anything, we have to say that wisdom first comes to us as a person, right? 
We're told in the Gospels that Solomon is the wisest person to ever live. And then it says, but someone greater than Solomon has come. Paul says that Jesus Christ has become to us the wisdom of God in his person, in who he is. He says elsewhere that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Where? In the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to seek the wisdom that's from above, wisdom that's good for you and for the world around you, you're going to have to learn how to seek Jesus himself. If you seek him, what might you find? Again, run back through this passage. You're going to find someone who was always others-centered. Someone who was always radically self-forgetful. Someone who resisted the earthly and the unspiritual and the demonic. Someone who was always pure and peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. Jesus is the seed of peace that was sown. He's the seed that went into the earth and died and then through the resurrection has borne the good fruit, the harvest of righteousness. Um, we read it earlier. The only way that we can be at peace with God or others is if, from Romans 1, 5, we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. He came and his, his, his whole way was my life for yours, not your life for mine. He died in the place of sinners, rose in righteousness, and what we're told is that if you believe in him, if you're united to him by faith, you, you're not only justified and you're pleasing in the sight of God and, and, and you can be sure of that, but you will become like him. You're united now to the wise one. And as you get to know him better, you will become like him. You'll become wise, other-centered, bent on God's glory, not your own. You'll begin to taste and see and know what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. And more than that, if you become like Jesus in his self-giving wisdom, guess what you'll become? Self-giving. I read a quote that um, described that really well this week. This is by uh, an author named uh, N.D. Wilson. He he says this. He says, "Lay, lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, or... I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die, and therefore afraid to live. That's a good quote. I think I ought to write a book or something. If If we come to know Jesus who gave himself for us, learning to give your life away for the sake of the king and the kingdom becomes the most normal motion of our week. It's it's ridiculous in the eyes of the world around you. Ridiculous. Because the world around you is always going to say, create more boundaries, protect protect yourself, make sure that you have everything that you need, maximum self-care in the worst sense of that. There is such a thing as good self-care. I'm talking about make sure you take care of you. And Jesus says, you will find your life when you learn to give it up for his sake. How is earthly wisdom working for you? If you would have to be honest and say that that's where you've been living, 
is a self-seeking, self-interested, self-invested life, bringing the meaning and hope that it promised? Is it possible that it's actually bringing exactly what God promised? More disorder rather than order. More, more vileness rather than purity and peaceableness. There, there's a way forward. Let's seek the wisdom that came from above and became visible to us in the incarnation. Um, let's seek the wisdom who lived the perfect life that we can't. Let's seek the wisdom that was foolishness in the eyes of the world and died on a cross in the place of sinners. Let's seek the foolishness of the world that rose again for those who will believe and draw near to him. And let's trust that as we seek him, he will make us just like him, wise. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we, um, we come to you and our prayer is that you might help us to see things that we can't because our ways sure do seem wise to us in the moment. And so, but we believe in the Holy Spirit and we believe in, in your word. And so we ask you that by the help of your spirit and according to your word, and even through the influence of brothers and sisters who love us, would you, would you help us see our own foolishness? Would you help us to see where we are living according to earthly wisdom? And would you, would you dethrone us from wanting all the things that we want for self-promotion? And would you let us find Jesus more valuable and more precious? And would you make us like him? And in that way, would you make us wise? Help us to seek him who is above that we might become like him. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.